Luke 7. All right. But actually, in that passage in John 7, there is this great dispute between the uh, Pharisees where they send some soldiers out to secure Jesus. And the officers, they call them, come out to Jesus and they hear him teach. And then they just kind of forget to arrest him. And they come back to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, where is he? And they said, never a man spake like this man. And they said, you are so ignorant. You just, you're, you, there's a curse on people as ignorant as you who can't interpret the scriptures. And that's, I thought it was actually quite, quite appropriate in some ways for Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus who, he never really spent much time around the religious elite, did he, when he was here. And that should be very instructive to us in how we puff ourselves up thinking we know something when really the proper attitude, of course, is to come with a humble heart and say, Lord, I need you. You know my frame and please teach me. All right, but Luke chapter 7, 36 through the end of the chapter. Luke seven thirty six. please grab your scriptures and let's read. And one of the Pharisees desired him, he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and had wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man... If he were a prophet, he'd have known who and what manner of woman this is that touched him. She is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. He saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. The one owed the five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love the most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom, was forg- to, to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast judged rightly. Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, See thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman have anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they they that sat at me with them began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. This is the word of God. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Jesus, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you that we have this amazing truth uh, that, uh, that you are the friend of sinners. And Lord, we have been forgiven much. Father, each of us in our heart, we come bearing wounds of sins, Lord, that have passed. And we bring them to you, Lord, and you wash us. Father, white as snow, white as snow, Lord, and we take that amazing uh, truth, and it soaks into us, and it gives us encouragement, and gives us the ability, um, Father, to love you much, and to, uh, to serve you. Father, we want to be soldiers that, uh, that uh, are loyal and, um, and faithful to our great captain, who's already fought the battle, he's already victorious, and now we get the, the joy of, of service. Father, we ask that you would take the, um, 
the sacrifices of praise that we bring. Father, that you would take these words that are sung. Father, would they come be a sweet sound, a sweet smell, Lord? Would you give us um, the great privilege of joining together as a body of Christ uh, in lifting up your name and of saying the truth, Lord, of saying that you're the friend of sinners, that our sins are washed white as snow, that we are therefore righteous before you, and we can be bold as lions in your service, Lord. Thank you for deliverances, Lord. It's just so good to see Jacob Coquit uh, back in the back of the church and specific deliverances we've prayed many, many times for, Father, that are here in this room like, um, like Will uh, Branson, Father. We, just, we, we lift up these sacrifices of praise, these thanksgivings before you. Father, would you hear our, our praises this morning? Would they not just be words and sounds and hollow noises, but rather would they be a sweet sound of praise to you? It's in the name of Jesus we pray and say amen. Um, Brother Isaac asked me to talk to you about um, memorization, so I'm just going to take a few minutes this morning to talk about some of the benefits of memorization, and then after that I'm going to go through a couple passages that I memorized. So when I talk about the passages, I'm going to be in Philippians. Alright, so first off, I'm going to go through two benefits of memorization. So first off, when you memorize a passage, you're really making sure that you're understanding more of what you're reading. Um, what I like to do when I memorize is, like, if I'm memorizing a large passage, like a chapter, I'll memorize about one verse a day. So, um, if you memorize one verse a day, you're making sure that you're really slowing down and taking the time to understand what is being meant in the passage. So that's the first reason, because you're really slowing down to understand what you read. And the second point is related to the first, and it's that you're really able to absorb more than just reading. Um, I like to use the analogy of a sponge. Like, if you just dip the sponge in water and I like, keep dabbing it, then it's not going to retain a bunch of water. But when you memorize, you're really just going to soak that sponge and soak up the word. So those are the two reasons um, that I have that I like to memorize scripture. All right. So next, I'm going to go through two passages that I memorized, and they're going to be in Philippians. First off, I'll go through chapter one, verses 15 through 18. Alright, so Philippians 1, chapters 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So there are three people in this passage. In chapter 16, we have the contentious man. In chapter 17, we have the loving man. And in chapter 18, we have Paul. So the contentious man is the one that we do not want to be like. The contentious man seeks conflict. Um, Brother Isaac has been speaking recently a lot about gender and about how Satan is very good at twisting a good thing into a tool for evil. Um, that's what the contentious man does in this passage. He takes the word of God, which should never be used in this way, and he twists it into a tool to tear others down. Second, we have the loving man. The loving man is the one that we should be like. He takes the word and he builds others up with it and furthers the kingdom of God. And then third, we have Paul. Paul recognizes that the contentious man seeks to do him harm and that the contentious man is wrong. Despite this, Paul realizes that Christ can be magnified and then he rejoices. Not only does he tolerate the contentious man's actions, but he rejoices. This is a good example for us that even when others are not doing the right thing, if there's any chance that they can be glorifying God, we need to take it and just try to help them along. 
All right, so next I'm going to go to chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, um, and I'm going to wrap it up. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Um, This passage signifies the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit in doing God's will. Um, We can never do God's will unless we have his Spirit within us. So whenever we're willingly choosing good over evil, that's proof of the Lord's Spirit guiding us. Choosing God's will will always lead to greater happiness in the long run than if we flee from his purpose. So that's all I've got. Thank you for listening. And that's it. Thank you, Kyle. What a blessing that was. And I really think, Kyle, that you illustrated with the passages that you selected, you illustrated your point in regards to memorizing. And that is, I doubt you would ever have taken uh, much time to consider um, the thoughts of Philippians 1, 16 through 18, the progression there, the contentious man and the loving man and Paul, um, outside of memorizing. That's not a Psalm 23 passage, right? That's not just the Lord's my shepherd, but it's one that that we wouldn't immediately notice or think about and just got some very, very important uh, truths. And so thank you for illustrating through what you, uh, what you were, uh, your point, through what you shared with us from the Word. So thank God for that. I remember um, before it was evident that the Lord was working in Kyle's heart, uh, his mother told me that Kyle had just, uh, on his own, had just memorized Romans 1. Um, and when she said that, I thought something has got to be happening in his heart as well. And so I thank the Lord for the work of grace in your heart. And may you continue to soak your life in God's word and by it grow thereby and then benefit the body of Christ as well as you did this morning. So the praise the Lord for that. Let's, let's pray and then let's open our Bibles to Luke 7. If you'll bow with me, Father, we're going to come now to Luke 7. And uh, this is your word, Lord. These are stories that you have preserved uh, because you knew uh, how important these stories, these individuals were for our um, spiritual understanding. Uh, So, Lord, through these stories this morning, would you build hope and faith and love for Jesus Christ in the hearts of all who will hear. Um, Instruct us. uh, Show us, Lord, where we fit into these stories. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you came in a little bit late... Um, the reading this morning was Luke 7, 36 through the end of the chapter. That's the story of uh, a dinner that was held for Jesus by a Pharisee named Simon. And the, dinner, the, 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 the narrative uh, centers around um, Simon's uh, perception of another person who showed up at the dinner uh, uninvited. Um, she is known as a sinner. And then the interaction between Jesus and Simon over this sinner's presence and her interaction with Jesus and then Jesus' interaction with the sinner. Now, I want to go back now. It's a long narrative, so I don't want to read it all at one time. I want to go back and do some more reading that precedes this story immediately. So let's start in verse 19, and I'm going to read down to... Verse 35. Okay, so Luke 7, 19 through 35. And John, and this is John the Baptist. We'll talk about him some more in a moment. But John the Baptist at this moment is, he's imprisoned 
um, and he is awaiting his execution, and he will be executed by Herod. And John is in prison, not because of a crime he's committed, but he's in prison because he upset Herod. Um, he, he, he rebuked Herod for um, his behavior um, uh, with a woman that was not his wife. And so eventually, through a whole series of um, sad and unjust circumstances, he finds himself in prison as opposed to repentance happening there with the one who was in sin. So here's where we read. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were coming to him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour, he, that's Jesus, cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whomsoever shall not be offended in me. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the winds? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, But he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and all the publicans justified God. That's the people that heard John the Baptist justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They are likened to children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. And then the narrative goes, of course, into Jesus going to dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. So there are three people in this story that I want us to think about this morning. And and here's what I want you to do. Um, Would you pray that God would help you to identify where you fit into one of these three individuals' place? We're going to look at John the Baptist... And then we're going to look at Simon the Pharisee and then this woman who is called the sinner. So this whole story, this whole narrative centers around what we just read. Um, What we just read is Christ reflecting on 
uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and the response to that ministry, and then as it leads into Christ's own ministry and the response to Christ's ministry. So John had, had a ministry, Jesus has a ministry, and the response to John's ministry and Jesus' ministry is, is the same. There are two responses to their ministry. And so Christ is reflecting on this. And so it centers around the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus thinking about John the Baptist's ministry. So John the Baptist, he was, um, just quickly, he was the last great prophet. He was uh, the prophet that had not been heard from for many, many years. There was no word that was coming from God because the Jews, Israel, had, had rejected God and had rebelled against God. But then, years and years after silence from heaven, John the Baptist appears on the scene. And John the Baptist is born um, in an unlikely way. He's born to very old parents. And it is prophesied that John the Baptist will be this one who will be the one to usher in the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, the Messiah. And we'll learn that is going to be Jesus. So that's going to be his ministry. And so John is born and he begins to minister. And the first thing that you notice about John is that he's just a strange person. Um, he, he's, he's, he dresses strangely and he eats strange food. But more, and he, he lives in a strange place. He's out in the wilderness. He's not, he doesn't go to Jerusalem to give this ministry, but he, he just goes to the wilderness. This is a, a picture of Israel has long been in the wilderness, but there's a voice in the wilderness that's going to bring them out of the wilderness. So he goes to the wilderness, he's eating strange food, and he's wearing strange clothes, and he's got a very strange message. Well, we're, we've seen plenty, plenty of strange people in our life, right? I mean, what is normal? What is strange? What is normal? Well, something about this, this strange man and this strange clothes and this strange food and this strange message produces a powerful effect. People from everywhere flock to the wilderness. So they leave the cities and they leave the towns and they leave the communities and they flock to the wilderness to get a sight and to more importantly hear the voice of this very strange man. Now here's his message. His message is the kingdom that has long been awaited, the kingdom that has long been promised is about to be in our midst. It's about to appear before our eyes. That's exciting. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah who has long been forecast, who has long been promised to the people of God, is on His way. He's about to be here. That's the exciting news. But then He says, there is a problem. And John the Baptist's ministry begins to center past just the people of Israel, and he begins to center upon each individual. He says, there's a problem. And the problem is, is that all the things that you have trusted in are not trustworthy. So he says, the axe has been laid to the root of what you've been trusting in. He goes, it's no longer good to be able to say, we have Abraham for our father. So we're going to be in this glorious kingdom because we are the children of Abraham. He says, that won't do you any good. Instead, you are not ready for the king because each of you are filled with iniquity. 
And the king is a righteous king. He's a holy king. He's a king of light. And you are filled with iniquity. So the message of John was the king is coming, but every single one of you need to repent. There's repentance. Because we're sinners. Bring forth, he would say, fruit that is meat for repentance. So that's a jarring message, isn't it? All that you've long awaited is about to be here, but you're not ready for it. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees. And you are not ready for it. But that's not the end of his message. John is blessed to meet the king, Jesus. And he would tell the people, listen, the one who's coming, you may think I'm a a sight, but the one who's coming, he says, I am not worthy. He's so glorious. He's majestic. He's the king. He's so worthy that I am not worthy to to bend down in the position of a servant, of a slave, and, and, and loosen his shoes. This is how glorious he is. So you're not worthy. You're a sinner. I'm not worthy, even though I'm the prophet. No one is worthy. But here's the rest of the message. He says, when John sees Jesus coming, what does he say? He says, behold, look, Here's the one who I'm not worthy of. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Here's the king. He's holy. Here's you. You're not holy. You need to turn, but you're still filled with sin. But the king who is coming is also the Lamb who will take upon himself the punishment and the penalty and the guilt even of those who are sinners. He will take it on himself. He is the lamb. He's the sacrificial lamb that the Old Testament law would forecast the one who was coming who could actually bear sin and take away sin and make all those who are cleansed by his suffering and his sacrifice, make them holy and totally and completely clean. So John's message is a gospel message. Right? It is Here's the king. You're a sinner. Here's the lamb that will take away sin. Behold Jesus. John's message is all about Jesus. Behold the lamb. I'm not worthy. It's not me. Behold Jesus. Well, that's the ministry of John. Now, we come to this place. And John is in prison. Remember, three people. John the Baptist, Simon, and the the sinner. Let's consider John the Baptist first. We just read it. John, hearing about the works of Jesus from a distance, because he can't see those works in person, he's in prison. John sends his disciples to Jesus with a very strange question. He says, are you the one, are you the one that we are looking for? Or is there another? Does that sound to you like, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world? Does that sound like, I am not worthy to baptize you, you baptize me? He would say another place. Does that sound like, I'm not worthy to touch your shoes? Instead, it's like, are you even the one? Now, we, we, don't, we don't know exactly why John is asking this question. 
But I think we can speculate with some pretty, with a good deal of certainty, can't we? John's circumstances have drastically changed. John understood that he was the one who was to prepare the way for the king of the world. And instead, the king of this world seems to have a lot more influence and power. And the king who's reigning right now has imprisoned John. And so there seems to be a good deal of confusion and doubt. And so let me just say this. I'm speaking right now of one whose faith has grown dim. And again, I'm praying, will you pray that God will show you where you fit today into this passage? We're looking at one whose faith has grown dim because life, just life, Life that is confusing. Life that doesn't seem to match up with what we might have thought that it looks like for the king of glory to reign. Can I tell you that Jesus is a friend of those whose faith has grown dim? In fact, I would tell you that the best thing John does here The best thing John does is is what he does with his dim faith. He he takes it to Jesus. I I think that's that's remarkable. I think oftentimes when our faith grows dim, we take it into a box. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because probably we're a little bit embarrassed to confess that our faith has grown dim. Christians aren't supposed to have a dim faith. Christians are to be rejoicing and filled with joy and, and, and certainty and sureness and hope. That's the anchor of the soul, right? Christians know the truth and the truth sets free. And so oftentimes we take our questions, our doubts, our fears, our confusion, and we just, we just isolate as, as tightly as we can or... We, we pour into those doubts. We pour into those questions. <clears throat> We're taken with ourselves. Well, John takes these questions to Jesus. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on John today, but I just want to point you to, to what Jesus does. Notice that Jesus does not immediately answer John's question. The disciples come to Jesus with a question And notice verse 21, and in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto them that were blind, he gave sight. Now, I want to think about the takeaway from that, but just for a moment, I just want to say this. Just just behold Jesus for a moment. Um, Jesus is able to discern between infirmities, whatever that means, and plagues and evil spirits. I would say to you that a lot of those probably presented the same way. But Jesus here, I mean, we can say He healed people. That would have been enough, right? But, but, but it's broken down to parts. He heals infirmities. He heals plagues. He heals evil spirits. He knows them. He knows you, friend. He knows what plagues you. 
He knows what's assaulting you. He knows it all. And He can divide asunder between the joints and the marrow and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Isn't that astounding? What a Jesus. But I want you to notice this too. Daniel, I thought about you as I was reading this passage. It says, He, many that were blind, He gave sight. If, if you'll notice in the ministry of Jesus, He does a lot of healing. But it seems, and I think it's more than seems, he, he seems to take special care to heal blindness. I think it has to do with Jesus being the light of the world. He is the light that shines in darkness to our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus seemed to take special note in His ministry on earth to give sight to those that were blind. Bartimaeus, many hear others' stories that are prominent in Scripture. Jesus, the light of the world, gives sight. And oh, what a blessing that must have been for as He gives sight for their first sight to be Jesus. And that's what Daniel is looking forward to. His first sight being that of Jesus Christ completely unveiled with no more sin, right? <clears throat> Then, verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And then he says, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So just a quick note to those whose faith is dim and you know that. Jesus does three things here. First of all, Jesus doesn't immediately answer with words. He just keeps working. He just keeps working. Secondly, He invites scrutiny. Jesus invites the disciples of John. Hey, disciples, you go tell John what you just saw and heard. You tell John of my works. You tell John that the poor are having the gospel preached to them. You tell John that blind are receiving their sight. Jesus invites scrutiny. And not just scrutiny, but if you notice carefully that everything, we don't have time to do this today, but everything that Jesus tells John's disciples to, to tell John of, every single one of those was specifically prophesied of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So he's also referring John back to the word that prophesied of Jesus' ministry, knowing that John knows the word, right? He's saying, John, go look at the word and then look at the evidence. So my works will stand up and my being as the fulfillment of prophecy will stand up. My word will stand up to whatever scrutiny that's needed there. In fact, it will do more than just stand up. It will change everything about your perspective. And so friend, here, here's the message to, to you if you are in this category today. Do what Kyle just did. Jump into the Word and behold Jesus. And what's going to happen, I'm going to predict this, what's going to happen as you behold Jesus, your vision of Jesus will grow by leaps and bounds and your heart is going to respond in kind. So that you may not be able to, as John likely, could not be able to explain his present circumstances any better 
But his confidence was that Jesus is exactly who John had prophesied of. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Messiah. The kingdom has come. He is reigning. He shall reign. I can't explain this part right now. It's confusing to me. But Jesus is Jesus. And then Jesus would do the third thing, and that is he would exhort John. A very gentle exhortation, but a very, a very direct exhortation. He says this, John, blessed is he. Blessed is he. Whosoever shall not be offended in me. What's he calling to? Jesus is calling John to enduring faith. John, I can promise you this. You will be blessed as you continue to trust and look to me. Now, let me ask you. Examine Jesus for a moment. You know what happened to John, right? John's head got cut off. John died. So did Jesus' word stand up here? Was John blessed for continuing to trust in Jesus? He lost his head. His life was cut short. He didn't see his children. He didn't see his grandchildren. So all the things that life would promise and that we think of being a good life, a blessed life, John never experienced those. Let me tell you, friends, Jesus was never promising that. Jesus was promising a greater blessing than our dim faith can see. Jesus was promising Jesus. Jesus was promising eternal life with the Father and the Son enjoying all the riches of the kingdom of God that is untouched in heaven. What a, what a, what a sight, right? What a, what a story if your faith is dim. I would encourage you to consider John the Baptist and Jesus' words to him. Let's move on. Jesus then stops, and he, he must have been thinking something like, I bet these people who've heard this about John are thinking that John's a, uh, not a very faithful person. So Jesus kind of goes into a defense of John's ministry here. He says, listen, let me ask you a question. What, why were all these people flocking to the wilderness? Why? Were they going to see a reed shaken with the wind? In other words, they just come to see some, some natural sight, just a... The grass blowing in the, in, the, in the breeze? Of course not. In other words, they weren't just on a, on a journey, just a, a, a sightseeing tour and say, let's see, let's see reeds that shake in the wind. And he says, well, they, were they coming to see a celebrity? Some man clothed in soft apparel? Well, they wouldn't go to the wilderness to see a celebrity. The celebrity's in the king's court. So why did the people flock to the wilderness? Was it for a, because he was a prophet? He says, yes exactly what the people flock to the wilderness for. Now think about that. What's he saying? The people flock to the wilderness because the people recognize this is the word of God through a prophet. In other words, there was something about that message that was compelling and they knew we are hearing truth right now. This man speaks truth. And so hordes of people recognizing this is the word of God flock to the wilderness. And yet, flocking to the wilderness, many did not believe. He says there were many Pharisees. And there were many righteous people. 
And many scribes who flocked to the wilderness, they knew they were hearing the voice of the prophet speaking the truth of God, yet they did not believe. And then there were others who said they were publicans and sinners, and they did believe. What's happening here? Well, Jesus then begins to describe how the people who did not believe did this. Here's what he says. He says, well, it's like, it's like this. It's like a child who could never be satisfied. You throw a party for the child. We're going to have a fun time. And they're like, no, I don't want to have a fun time right now. So we pipe and you don't dance. And you go, fine, let's have a sad time. We don't want to have a sad time. We want to dance. He says, so John came and he was sad. He's wearing camels and camels camel's le- uh, 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 hair and a leathern girdle and eating locusts and wild honey. And you go, this guy's, this guy's crazy. And then he said, I come. So John comes in this morning, this need for repentance. And he said, then I come. And I come and I'm eating with people. And you go, he's a, he's a wine-bibber and a gluttonous man. He's, he's out of control. He's a, he's, a, he's a wild man. Don't listen to him. He goes, you're, you're never satisfied. What is Jesus keying on here? Friends, he, 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 he said, you knew you were hearing the truth, yet you did not follow the truth. How did you get around following the truth in your own heart and mind? You know his answer? His answer is, you did this through a, you rejected this word by deflecting the word through a critical spirit. Let me say that again. You rejected the word by deflecting the blunt, the, 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 the blunt truth of the word through a critical spirit. You found something to criticize, and in your criticism of John being a, a, a strange man and Jesus being a, a, a jovial man, as it were, a joyful man, you found what you needed to get around the edge of the truth that was penetrating right at your heart. You see, we tend to associate a, a critical spirit with righteousness, don't we? Well, they're not doing the right thing. And we think that's righteous. Jesus says this is the opposite. How powerful is this critical spirit? Listen, it was so powerful that they saw dead people being raised from the dead. Dead people coming to life. They saw blind people who had never seen the light of day see the color blue for the first time. That's that's powerful, isn't it? And yet they were so filled with criticism and that, 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 that they were blinded to the reality of truth. Of what was right before their eyes. A dead person coming to life. And it was, they were unmoved by that. Friend, the, the strength of the blindness of our hearts. The strength of resisting the word of God by finding some way to deflect the word of God. Should terrify us. Should terrify us. You go, well, if I see truth, I'm going to recognize truth. Maybe not. If I see light, I'm going to recognize light. Maybe not. 
Maybe if our hearts are so filled with disdain and with criticism, we may not see it at all. Friends, we, let me say this. We can deflect the truth, but we can't stop the truth, can we? We can't stop reality, can we? I mentioned this a few, few weeks ago, but I, I, I was so moved by reading Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36 describes uh, God's attempt to, to, to bring the people of Judah to repentance. And so God has uh, Judah, I mean, uh, Jeremiah to, to, to speak these words of, of judgment to, to Judah. And he has his, his, uh, his, his servant or, or his, his friend, Jeremiah's friend, to, to write down these words of judgment that Jeremiah will dictate to him. And the whole goal of God was, if you write these down and then go read these to the people, then they will hear these words and they'll repent and then I'll turn away my judgment from them. So God's word was given to them in mercy. Hear that again? God's word. Jesus came in mercy. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came as a friend for sinners. But those who don't recognize they're sinners, he's not a friend to, is he? So Jeremiah writes the word. They read it to the people. The people reject the word. I'm sorry, no, no. The people actually enjoy hearing the word. And they pass it on down the line, and it finally reaches the king's court, and the word is read in front of the king. And what does the king do? The king takes a knife, and he cuts the word, and throws the word in the fire. Thinking that if I throw this word in the fire, it'll go away. Does that make sense? God spoke this word from heaven through the prophet to the writer. He writes it down. Do you think throwing the word in the fire makes it go away? But that's how silly we can get at times, isn't it? Our hearts are hardened towards God. So we think we can just deflect this and throw it away. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be done. It won't happen. It's not going to hit me. You know what happens? God says, Jeremiah, call your buddy and start writing again. And we're going to write the same word down, but we're going to add an addendum to it. And the addendum is going to be, I'm going to add some judgments to this king for this action. So what he did in deflecting the word of God was he only added more trouble and more sorrow to his life. It's astounding, isn't it? And yet there are some who believe. Who are these some? These are publicans and sinners. So the question I want to ponder just for a moment is this. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? The same people hear the same word. Have you ever pondered that? Maybe loved ones that you have, you go, why won't they change? Why won't they turn? Why can't they hear God's word? What makes the difference? Well, there's a parallel passage to Luke 7. It's Matthew 11. The same story is told in terms of Jesus talking about John the Baptist's ministry. And in Matthew 11, Jesus would point us to two things. Here's what Jesus would say. First of all, Jesus would say, Matthew 11. Let me just read this portion of this. Verse 20. Then began he. This is right after Jesus says, you've criticized John, you've criticized me. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. He says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were 
done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And now Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shall be brought down to hell. If the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What is he saying? He is saying, there is no excuse. There's no excuse to anybody who sees the works of Jesus, who hears the truth of Jesus, who sees the glory of Jesus that is displayed in nature, that is manifest through the Son of God coming to this earth, that is seen in the evidence of the resurrection from the dead, and that is seen in the clear truth that comes from His Word. You can't read the Bible without recognizing, this is talking to me. Right? He says, there's no excuse. You are fully responsible. If Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, had seen the same works of Jesus that he was doing in his ministry, they would have repented a long time ago, he says. You are fully responsible. The works are clear. There's no excuse. But then Jesus says this. He prays, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son, but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Friend, do you know why your loved one or those you're praying for don't see the same word of God? Well, they're responsible. It's clearly being brought out before them and there's no excuse. And here's the thing. We are fully dependent on the sovereign God of heaven. To pull away the scales from our eyes. And even more, the stubbornness of our hearts. To show us the foolishness of throwing the word into the fire. Or saying, John's too conservative and Jesus is too liberal. That's all foolish deflection. And we need God's grace to show us just how delusional and foolish that is. And so friends, as you pray, as you think of your loved one, or you think of your own heart... Pray to the one who can change the heart. Who can turn the heart. The only one who can do that. God is fully sovereign and Jesus thanks the Father. Can you do that as well? As you struggle over the struggle of your life and the one who will not change, will you, as you pray for them, thank the Father that He's sovereign in this? The Father who is sovereign to allow John the Baptist to get his head cut off is the same one who holds our life in his hands, both our physical life and our eternal life. And so as you hear this word, you're fully responsible. As you hear this word, you're fully dependent on the work of a sovereign God. Then Jesus would close this way. That's a burden, isn't it? He would say, you, are you burdened over this? You come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
I will give you rest. So that's why. So there's these two responses. The public and the sinners believe. The scribes and Pharisees reject. And that's, the, that's Jesus' thoughts about the ministry of John the Baptist and his own. And then Jesus illustrates this truth in the lives of two people in real time at a real dinner party. Here's a Pharisee, a man named Simon, and he desires that Jesus will come to his house for dinner. And so he invites Jesus to dinner. As we think about the Pharisee, we say with three people, the question I want you to, to, to ponder for a moment is, what does blindness look like? What does blindness to truth, what does blindness to Jesus look like? Now, I know this, if you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christian today, you cannot be fully and totally spiritually blind. But I also know this, if you're a Christian today, you can be very, very, you have your eyes, you can have humongous cataracts over your eyes that will obscure clear vision of Jesus Christ. And so whether you're a Christian or not, listen to this passage. You may find yourself here even if you truly have faith in Jesus Christ. To a degree. Okay? So what does blindness look like? Well, I'm going to say three things. I've already mentioned one of those already. Blindness looks like just neglect. Just neglect. We... we, we we tend to, to defend neglect. Well, I just didn't think about it. I, I just didn't notice it. But Jesus does not excuse neglect. Friends, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about the one who spake and all came into existence. We're talking about the Lamb of God who takes on His own body the wrath of God for sinners that we might go free. We're talking about the one who has redeemed us by his blood out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. We're talking about the one who reigns supreme. We're talking about the one who conquered death. We're talking about the one who holds all things by the word of his power, who holds all things in his hand. We're talking about the one that it says the Father, it pleased the Father that in Jesus should all fullness dwell, who hidden in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't afford to neglect Jesus. Okay? So here's what happens. Jesus is invited into the man's home for dinner. He's clearly intrigued by him. But he's not impressed with Jesus. Now this is kind of goes beyond our normal things. We invite somebody to dinner. We just say, y'all come at 6 o'clock. And you come inside and the food's prepared and you eat. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't wash their feet. It'd be kind of creepy, wouldn't it? Well, you take your shoes off and wash your feet real quick before you eat. And, and, and let, me, let me dab a little oil in your head. <laughs> That'd be a little odd, wouldn't it? You'd probably run the other way. But that was normal here, okay? So you can imagine some dusty streets. You can imagine a lot of sweat. Maybe it smells not so, so great. So a normal thing would be to, to, to dab a little anointing oil on the head, maybe the hair, and just, just to offer that as a freshener, and then to, to wash the feet to clean. And you would do that for any guest, really any guest, but, but for an honored guest, you absolutely would not neglect that, would you? And Jesus will point out to the man later, he said, you invited me to eat, and you didn't even, Psalm 23, thou anointest my head with oil, right? You, you didn't even anoint my head with oil. And, and you, didn't even, you didn't even call for anybody to come and wash my feet. 
And the man might say, well, I just, I just didn't think about it. We were busy. What, what blindness looks like is just neglect of that which we should do. Just not noticing. It doesn't appear to us. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really intend to just not come to church for a while. I just, just neglected it. I, I didn't... I know I'll read my Bible more, but this is the Word of Jesus. We're not even talking about heeding to the Word and turning... I'm about just, just reading the Word. It's the Word of Jesus. I intended to repent of those sins or to love my wife or to stop speaking in those... But it just, just didn't happen. Blindness looks like neglect. Secondly... Blindness, we mentioned already, blindness looks like an overly critical spirit, a hypercritical spirit. This man sees Jesus, and again, this dinner party looks different than ours. They would have these low slung tables, and oftentimes you might have your elbow on the table, yep, you're down low, and you're kind of sitting. I'm not going to try to play this out and look ridiculous, but you'd kind of be perched on your side with your feet out behind you. That would be uncomfortable for me. I'm not very flexible, but that's sort of how these dinner parties work. So low table, maybe a foot off the ground, your elbows on it, you're slung over there, your feet behind you on the ground. That's what this might look like. And so what happens is, is as they're having this dinner party, here's another strange thing. It wasn't unusual. If you've been to India, you would know this, but it wasn't unusual for people just kind of filter in to the place and just kind of hang out through the the dinner party. So that was an unusual thing that we unusual for you. It was unusual here. So people might that weren't invited might just kind of show up, be standing on the back of the wall and just kind of observing things and, and maybe filter back out and come back in. Again, that was a real shocker the first time I went to India. They started to see that kind of thing happening. That's pretty normal. So this, this Pharisee sees this woman who is known as the sinner, a sinner. So she has a definite reputation in town for some sort of a, a, a sinful, uh, 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 just a, a dedication to sin that made her known as the sinner to everybody. She knew herself as a sinner. He sees this woman approaching Jesus, interacting with Jesus, and this man, instead of saying, oh my goodness, I forgot to wash his feet. Oh my goodness, I forgot to bring him some oil for his head. He says... He says, if this man were a prophet, this would not be happening here. This would not be happening here. So his criticism is not just to the woman, is it? His criticism is directed at Jesus. And by the way, these words aren't coming from his mouth. They're in his heart and his mind. He's thinking these words. He's speaking them to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would not be doing this. I'm going to leave it there. Friend, just examine your own heart to see whether you have become so critical of others that you're elevating yourself, that that, that you're depending on your um, relative righteousness to stand before God. This man is depending on being better than somebody else. To be right with God. Let me just tell you, that's not sufficient. You will never be right with God. You will never be right with God by being better than anybody else. You can't be right enough. And they can't be wrong enough. 
We're not, ta- we're not saying there's not right and not wrong, but if, if a hypercritical spirit has entered your heart so much that you see everything with critical glasses, that's not a sign of righteousness. That's a sign that your heart is in a very, deep, a very desperate place. This man was more protective of his own dignity. How could this be happening in my house? Than he was of seeing truth. So that when Jesus... Remember, he just the irony of this. Two, two things. The first irony is, this man says, he's eating with sinners. Who's the sinner here? He's not one. Second irony is this. If he were a prophet, and the next thing that happens is, Jesus says, I have something to say to you. I've got words. Prophets have words. And the words that Jesus will speak to the man directly are a response to the words that were in the man's heart that never came out of his lips. Is he a prophet? If Jesus can read your mind, you better pay attention. Does this message read your mind in any way? Does the Word of God read your mind in any way? Well, what do you do when Jesus reads your mind? Jesus reads his mind and reading of the man's mind is not enough. To grab his heart. He's still. It's critical. Beware, beware, beware. Lest lest the the hyper focus on seeing the sins of others. This is a real thing, friends. We live in a very sinful age. We have a very sinful society. The, The sins of our society are not hard to see. They're clear. And we should prophetically speak against those. But as we do that, if we are so focused on seeing the sins of others that we stop seeing our own, we are in deep trouble. Our Individually and collectively at the church, we must see our own. We must see our own if we're to see it all. Now let's talk about sin for a moment. Because Jesus comes to Simon and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says, there's a man who, who owes 50, 50 pence, 50 denarii. That was like a, a denarii a day. Keeps the doctor away. I think it's something like that. A, a denarii a day is about, about your wage. And so let's say you owed 50, um, and 50 would be like almost two months' salary for an average individual. Something, something, something like that. So if you're two months in debt, that would be troubling. You'd probably start getting calls from your, from your, from your land, land, landlord, and, and you're like, oh, we've got to figure out how to, how to pay this. That would be troubling for sure to be two months in debt. And then another person owes 500 pence. So that's more like 10 times that, right? It is 10 times that. 50 times 10, 500. 2 months times 10, 20 months. Now you are in real trouble now, right? 20 months behind. You're not in that house anymore. Okay? And you can't pay it back. And he says, a, a, a man owes 50, a man, a man owes 500, and they're both forgiven of their debt because neither one can pay. Who do you think is going to love the most? Let's talk about sin for a moment. Are there degrees of sin? Are there? Well, in a sense, yes. The Old Testament law would have different penalties for different sins, right? Um, there were certain sins that were more destructive to society. Romans 1 talks about this, this progression of sin that becomes more and more and more increasingly uh, opposed to God and abominable. And so, yes, there's a degree of sin in terms of its outright destructiveness, um, of how reprobate its thinking is. 
Um, we see our society today, we, see our, we can say our society is growing more sinful, right? Because we see more lawlessness. And increasing lawlessness and increasing just uh, rejection of God. So yes, there's a, degree, there's a difference in sin in some, in some ways. But in terms of its guilt, is there a difference in sin? No. No. Let me read this to you. Verse 42. And when they had nothing to pay. So you go, well, I'm only a 50-cent a 50, 50 guy. You know, I, I, I go to church, and I love my husband, and I, and I do the right thing, and I vote, and I whatever. I'm a 50-cent 50, 50 guy, and, and I'm not at that 500 thing. That's awful. Here's the reality, friends. Neither one had anything to pay. This is what Jesus is getting at. Simon doesn't realize this. Friends, God is light with no darkness at all. And Simon is banking on being a 50 cent guy. Well, let's get off of Simon for a moment, can we? There's one more person in this story. Again, I'm I'm praying, will you find yourself in this story somewhere? The last person is the sinner. What a name. Let's close quickly, but let's ask a couple of questions. How did she get there? How did she get to this house this night? Like, what made her think it's a good idea to come into this Pharisee's house when, I'm gonna, when I am known as being the sinner and come to this, this guy's house? Well, friends, we know what made her come to the house that night, wasn't it? She knew that Jesus was there. She was compelled, just like the woman with the will, she was compelled to push past her embarrassment, to push past her shame, to push past all the stink eyes she was going to get, and the shaking of the head and the whispers that she was going to hear as he walked. Did you see the sinner come in? And not to just go cower in the corner, but that she brought with her. Uh, not just some ointment for the head. This was different. This is a different thing. She brought with her an expensive and perhaps, but we don't know that she was involved in, in, in sexual sin, but it seems like she may have been. And, and, and this alabaster box would be something that would remind people of her, her sinful self. And she didn't mind bringing this alabaster expensive box of ointment and just pour it over her head. And just imagine the scene. Maybe she said, I just want to get close to Jesus. And, and, and I'm, I'm totally speculating here, but somehow tears started to flow. Maybe she didn't know they were going to flow. Maybe she just stood there and, and, and boom, a drop falls. And she goes, oh my goodness. And then more drops fall, more drops fall. And then there's this, this flood of tears, a flood of tears that went down upon the feet of Jesus. And then there was something about Jesus that says, you know what? I'm going to use my hair. Imagine, ladies, your hair is your glory. I'm going to use my hair. So imagine water and dirty feet. That's mud, right? I'm going to use my hair to clean off and to wipe off the feet of Jesus. And I'm going to take not just a dab of this ointment. I'm going to 
take this whole box and I'm going to pour it out upon his head. What is blindness? Blindness is not being able to see yourself for who you are. But blindness is also not being able to see Jesus for who he is. What is sight? Sight is being able to see sin as it really is. I'm a sinner. That's who I am. That's what they call me. That's who I am. But John said that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world, people like me, people who have long lain in darkness. And she wipes his feet with the hairs of her head. She, Jesus says, she does not cease. What a scene. She does not cease to kiss my feet. You know, you might kiss the foot or kiss the head as a sign of, a sign of greeting, a sign of deference. But she's, she grabs his foot and she won't stop kissing his feet. And, and, and I just want to ask you, we're going to close here. I just want to ask you, I've asked you to find yourself in this story. Does this describe how you treasure Jesus Christ? Does this describe how you see Jesus Christ? Does this describe how you interact with Jesus at night as you're praying your prayers before you go to bed? Does this, interact, does this describe how you take His Word and, and read it? Friend, this is the only place to be in regards to Jesus. This is not a story. What really matters is how Jesus sees this story. And let me tell you how Jesus sees this story. Jesus says twice, thy sins are forgiven. To all of you in this room today, you can never hear more blessed words than that. Ever. You want a million dollars. Nothing. You're cancer-free. Nothing. Will you marry me? Not at all. You can't hear more blessed words. Thy sins are forgiven. How do we know that? Because look at how she loves. Jesus says, Thy sins which are many are forgiven, for she, look at her, for she loveth much. He's not saying her sins are forgiven because she loves much. He's saying her sins are forgiven. Here's the evidence. She loves like crazy. You see, here's the the reality, friends. People who have actually come to see both the glory of Jesus and the reality of their own sins, we all feel like we should all feel like, I'm the 500 guy, the 500 girl. Can I tell you, as long as you see yourself as the 50 or the not at all, That criticism is just going to grow. That disdain will grow. The self-assurance will grow. Maybe even the dimness, as John the Baptist had, will grow. But when you see, I'm the 500. But he's the friend of sinners. Thy faith hath saved thee, he says. Go in peace. This woman had no peace in Simon's home. She had no peace in, in, her, in, her, in her surroundings. She was the sinner. Again, let me just emphasize, her, she is known as being the sinner. How'd you like that? Oh, the sinner's coming in. Somebody go say hi to him. Somebody see if, if, they, if, they, if they can just 
stand, you know how it goes. He says, go in peace. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Well, the reason that I, the reason that, that, that I want to preach the sermon today is really twofold. Number one, just, just as I was reading my Bible, just the scene of how she treasured Jesus. And it just kind of grew into all the rest of it. But I, I just, if you get nothing else, just, just spend some time meditating on, on her approach to Jesus. The tears, the joy, the worship, the sacrifice. It's not the woman who is the hero of the story, Jesus is actually worthy of that. He, she didn't overspend on him. Oh, Lord, help me to see your son as he really is, is really what got me here. So will you, will you look at that? Will you pray that God will help you to see the son as he really is? And that your, your lifestyle, our lifestyle, might be some way reflective of that sort of approach to Jesus. Okay? But the other thing that got me on this was, was uh, that this coming Wednesday night is our, is our fasting and prayer night. And we said we're going to devote this Wednesday night to just prayers of confession. Well, let me tell you this. Spiritually blind people can't pray prayers of confession. Those prayers sound like this. Lord, I thank Thee that I am not as a publican. <laughs> I thank Thee that I give all my tithes. I thank You that I'm righteous. I confess I need to be more righteous. But I'm pretty dang righteous. Jesus doesn't hear those prayers. And so if we're going to come and pray prayers of confession, believing that Jesus hears, we're reading Daniel 9, where Jesus turned the captivity of Judah and brought them out in miraculous ways. Do you believe that God can do that? Do you believe that God could hear the prayer of Nehemiah and the temple walls would be rebuilt eventually? Do you believe that God can do that? Friend, don't come to, to God in confession or God at all if you don't believe that He is and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. He rewards those who seek Him. God hears these prayers. He responds to these prayers. We have to pray them. And we can't pray them if we're not in the position of the sinner. May God bless you. I hope this is a blessing to you today. That was what's on my heart. And we will get back next week, Lord willing, to what is a woman. Okay? So let's pray that God will bless us to, uh, to hear this word, to receive it, and to see Jesus as he is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for this, this chapter, Luke 7. What a chapter, Lord. Uh, thank you for this, uh, the, the, just the patience of everybody to sit through this long message and hear it. May they see Jesus as he truly is. In Jesus' name I pray and say amen.